Um, our sermon for today, um, we are wrapping up a series that we've been working on for the last couple of weeks. Um, the last couple of weeks, we, we have been working through a series entitled Life After Death. Um, it's the ministry of the resurrected Jesus. We've been looking at the 40 days in between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, his ascending to the Father, who he met with, how did he minister to them. Now, today is a special day. Um, and I'm not referring to Mother's Day, although allow me to give a quick shout-out um, to, the, to the moms in the room. Um, we're grateful for you, and um, particularly my wife. I'm grateful for you very much. Um, and, but having said that, um, this past Thursday was another holiday, different holiday. It's the 40th day since Easter. It is the Ascension Day, um, which means that for churches that utilize the church calendar. Some congregations do that, others don't as much. But for those who do, it is Ascension Sunday. Um, We've been a little heavy-handed probably with it uh, so far in the service, so that probably is not necessarily news to you. Um, And here at GCC, we're not strict observers of the the church calendar. Um, We'll we'll commemorate the high and holy days of Easter and and Christmas. Give a nod to Palm Sunday or Maundy Thursday or Advent. Um, but as far as Ascension Day, that, that's one that really doesn't typically get a lot of press these days. There's no sort of Ascension, you know, you get Santa Claus and Easter Bunny and you, you, got, you got other these. And there, there's no sort of like Ascension, you know, person that shows up or whatever. Um, <laughs> it's, just, it's just kind of there and, you know... It doesn't register as much. In fact, this past week, I actually looked for a, um, uh, a service of Ascension. I was going to go, hey, let's go check out a church and see if they've got an Ascension Day service here in Memphis. I couldn't even find one. Um, and so, which is odd. And the reason it's odd is because historically speaking, Ascension Day would have been right up there with Christmas or Easter. It's a big, big deal. Because what it does is connects the ministry that, that Jesus did during his 33 or so years on the planet, his life, his death, his resurrection, with the rest of the New Testament, with the, with the reality of the church of which we are participating in today. And so how does the ministry of Jesus connect to the reality of the church? That's what we're going to see in our text for today. Our passage comes from the book of Acts. Um, And and just a little context concerning what we're about to read here. The book of Acts was written by a man named Luke, who is the same Luke who wrote the gospel according to Luke. And the gospel of Luke was written to a man named Theophilus. Um, It was an explanation of of who this Jesus was and and this phenomenon known as Christianity. And so the gospel according to Luke gets into the, the birth and the life and the teachings, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But as we're going to see here, the book of Acts was essentially uh, to serve as, as, as almost like a volume two, as the second part to the gospel according to Luke. And, and though we don't know much about this Theophilus character, um, we have been benefiting as the church for centuries by, by reading his mail. And so what I want us to do is to look at the introduction uh, to the second volume of Luke, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 of the book of Acts. You can find this on page 12 of your worship folder. Hear the word of the Lord. 
In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Just God, we give you thanks for your word and how it helps us to orient ourselves um, in what can feel like a very confusing world sometimes as we get a glimpse into um, this transition point in uh, history and how that continues to impact ourselves and the world around us even now uh, by the work of your Spirit. So help us to uh, get a greater understanding and appreciation of who we are in Christ so that we may, in knowing that, serve you and serve this world better as your people. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, all right. There's an expression that gets used a lot nowadays. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe, maybe you've even used it. Um, if someone holds to a particular belief, um, a perspective or a view or an understanding of something that, that is thought to be antiquated, thought to be behind the times, um, a, a view that's no longer acceptable, that view can be referred to as, or that person, um, can be referred to as being on the wrong side of history. You ever heard this before? Go like this if, you, if you're familiar with. Uh, that, that's on the wrong side of history. It's becoming a, a and, and we've seen it through politics for the last 30 or so years, Republicans, Democrats, they both use it. The idea is that, is that I'm right, and the way I know I'm right is because this seems to be the trajectory by which you know, society, the country, culture, whatever, is moving. Um, and so to not agree with this move means you are on the, the wrong side of history. 
it, it gets used a lot, but it's a really problematic statement. And here's why. To say that, that there is a wrong side of history implies that, that there is a right side of history, which the vast majority of the time is the view of the person using the expression, right? I'm right, and anybody doesn't agree, they're, they're not so much. But um, the thought is, my particular view, my belief, is, is perceived to be good. It, it is the right side of history, and the way a person knows that is because that's what's happening right now, Okay? This is the way we're moving, so, so get on board. Any student of history, though, could tell you that, that just because something is happening right now, even, like, collectively happening right now, that doesn't mean that's always going to be the, the, the case. Um, things have a way of, of changing. But the deeper problem with this notion of, of being on the, the, the wrong side of history or on the right side of history is that it implies that there's some impersonal force, history, that is guiding the world into a particular direction, which really doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, I mean, if there's no one actually governing history, if history is just this, this force, then it's tough to make an argument that, that one way is right versus wrong, for history to move this way versus that one. Like, who decides what's right and wrong? But furthermore, if there's no one at the helm, then there's no assurance that history would move any particular way. Someone's got to do the, the guiding of history. Now, as followers of, of Jesus, we believe that history is, in fact, moving a particular direction. Not because of some impersonal force called history, but because we believe that, that, that this planet, this cosmos, this world, our lives even, are governed by an almighty, omniscient, all-knowing, loving God. Our text tells us that, that during the 40 days with his disciples, Jesus began speaking to his disciples about the kingdom of God. I'm fairly certain that there's not a more frequently mentioned topic in Scripture that, frankly, we just don't understand than the kingdom of God. Of God, it's everywhere, and I, I I can't help. I mean, even for me, I've kind of been doing this. My job, whatever, professional Christian. But I mean, it's this is kind of a tough topic. Kingdom of God. What do we What do we mean? Because it's everywhere. It's everywhere in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament alike. Constant refrain, and, and I suspect that for many of us, struggle to know what that's talking about. The ascension of Jesus. Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father, there's all sorts of themes that, that could kind of come out of that. But what's happening here is essentially a coronation, an enthronement. Jesus is being placed at the right hand of the Father to rule. And so what I want us to do today is to talk about the kingdom of God in this message entitled, Good News for the World. In our passage, I want us to see three things about Jesus' kingdom from our text. Three, Andy Owens, three things. He does not like the two-pointers. So, there it is. Um, I want us to see three things about Jesus' kingdom. First, it's global. Second, it's empowered. And third, it's certain. 
Global, empowered, and certain. First, global. Now, typically, I mean, if you, if you study history and you're wanting to kind of learn about, okay, where does this kingdom go? Where does it belong? As we think about that, we, you know, we, we pull out a map, right? And, and you know, we, we sort of look at it and go, there, there it is. There, there are the borders of that, and there's the capital city. That's where the ruler reigns because that's what a, a kingdom needs, right? A kingdom needs a king. And the job of, of the king is, is to rule. So the, so the capital is sort of where the king does its ruling. Based on the disciples' question in verse 6, look at that if you would, verse 6. Um, they come together and they ask Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What the disciples are, are looking for, you can tell by this question, They are looking for a geographical, political kingdom that you can find on a map with Jesus sitting on the throne, which is exactly the same thing they were looking for throughout his earthly ministry as well. Remember, you know, was it James and John jockeying for position? I want to sit on this, I want to sit here now. You know, who's actually going to get to be the the real insiders running the show? And so, Jesus has come back from the grave. And they're thinking, you know, Jesus, yeah, that, was a, that was a good one. Um, kind of threw us a curveball there, you know, the whole death, resurrection thing. But, but now that we're back, we're back on track, well, what about this kingdom thing? Um, we're ready to start doing this thing, all right? Ready to get Israel back on the map, okay? Let's get you on a throne, let's get the army trained, and let's take down these Romans, In commenting on this verse, John Calvin makes the statement that there are as many uh, errors in this question as there are words. It's an extremely problematic statement. And it's a problematic statement that, that Jesus actually doesn't even correct. Jesus doesn't say no or yes, because it's more complicated than that. Instead, what he does is he he offers a different version of the kingdom, a kingdom that that moves beyond geography. You will be my witnesses, he says. Where? In Jerusalem, yes, Israel, but in Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, but not just there. It, It keeps expanding, concentric circles here. Yes, Israel, but also in these places, too. Because you see, what, what's happening here is their focus is on their land, their people, their greatness, their prestige. And what Jesus has to do here is to expand their vision from the things that they are interested in because God is not interested solely in Israel and what's going on there. That's where, I mean, God has chosen these people, and that's where the gospel has coming forth, and God is using them. But, but God's mission is global. God's mission is about the entire planet, the entire cosmos, even. At the end of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus makes this statement, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. All authority on heaven and earth. So where? Where is Jesus' kingdom? If you can't just pull out the map and sort of, here it is, where is Jesus' kingdom? Creation is Jesus' kingdom. That's what today, I'd say it's all about, but 
It's a pretty significant piece of what today is about, is that all of creation belongs to Jesus. As one famous theologian said, there's not a square inch of this planet that does not belong to him where Jesus goes, mine. And the ascension teaches us that Jesus is king right now. We're not waiting for the day when Jesus will one day be king. Nor do we, as human beings, maybe you've heard this language before, you know, like, I make Jesus king. You don't make Jesus anything. Um, Jesus is the king. We don't make him king by submitting to him. We submit to him because he is the king. He's king now. He's reigning now. And Jesus' kingdom is not some, some geopolitical entity. As if the, the nation state of Israel now, or, or the United States of America, or, or Zimbabwe uh, or, is the kingdom, okay? Because usually that kind of corresponds with, you know, wherever I am. Um, whatever particular corner of the universe I find myself, that's the kingdom. Jesus is king everywhere, is what this teaches us. Because Jesus is not interested in just restoring Israel, he's about restoring creation. Since Genesis chapter 3, the good creation that God made has been hijacked by sin, by rebellion, by suffering, by selfishness, by death, with the coup d'etat that took place there. And Jesus is taking it back to conquer the enemies that are not in submission to his kingdom. And anything that runs counter to the way things were designed to be. And so, the reign of Jesus is not simply interested in conquering Romans. That's the point that he's got to communicate to these disciples, as if the Romans are the real enemies. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 makes this statement that Jesus will deliver the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Jesus conquering sin and death by taking sin and death upon himself and then rising victoriously over them, Jesus taking on principalities and powers so that he might usher in a new world. A world that looks like the way creation is supposed to be. Tim Keller puts it this way, the kingdom is the renewal of the whole world through the entrance of supernatural forces. As things are brought back under Christ's rule and authority, they are restored to health, beauty, and freedom. This is the kingdom that Jesus came to bring. And it's happening even now, believe it or not, as his reign is being acknowledged and the implications of this are being lived out. Even now, as the forces of sin and death are being pushed back. More on that in a moment. But the way that, according to Keller, that this is possible gets us to our second point. The way it's possible is through supernatural forces entering in. Which brings us to our second point for the day, that Jesus' ministry, I'm sorry, that Jesus' kingdom is empowered. Go back to verse 1, if you would, uh, in, in the text. It says, uh, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do. He, he began to do things. 
Now, to, to, to begin to do something, I think about the, you know, the various chores around the house that I'm supposed to do. Um, I begin to unload the dishwasher, and I begin to dress the children, and I begin to whatever I'm supposed to do. Um, happy Mother's Day. Um, the thought is, I'm supposed, you know, by saying I'm beginning to do those things, it implies that it's not done yet. There's more to be done. It's not finished. And, and that's exactly the same principle that we're seeing here. That Jesus' work is not done yet. Yes, the book of Acts was all about his life, his death, his resurrection. And Jesus is about to leave in the first book of Acts. And yet it starts talking about the fact that Jesus has only begun. Even as he physically departs from the planet, he's only Begun. The ministry of Jesus is not concluded at his ascension. In fact, it's just getting started. Back in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, on the last night with his disciples, before his death, Jesus makes the following statement. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works then these he will do, because I'm going to the Father. If I heard anybody on the planet say that other than Jesus, I would be extremely uncomfortable with it. I mean, it seems like downright heresy to suggest such a thing. How could we do greater works than Jesus? Now, to be clear, the the work of Jesus, what he accomplished through perfect life, atoning death, resurrection, by which he accomplished salvation for his people, that's a one-time thing. That can't be replicated, nor should we try to replicate it. I mean, to attempt to, to, to look for or to add to salvation apart from that finished work is to deny the sufficiency of that finished work. But having said that, After making this claim, greater works than these you will do, Jesus then makes this statement, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The spirit of truth and he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus actually tells his disciples, me leaving you is a good thing. Which of course would have sounded like crazy talk to them, right? But in leaving them, he is ascending to the Father, and he will give his Spirit to his followers. And by having his Spirit dwell within his people, in terms of the sheer volume of what's going to be done, it will be greater than what Jesus was capable of doing as a human being. And here's why. Here's the reason Jesus can say that. Because when he was on a planet, on this planet, he was a human being. He took on a real body. And being a human being meant that he took on the limitations of being human. Most notably, you can't be in multiple places at once. That's just kind of part of the deal. And so while he did a great deal during the 33 or so years on this planet, he was limited in his humanity and would have continued to be limited in his humanity had he remained on the planet. But by empowering millions and millions of people, 
with his spirit over the last two millennia, his people have been able to accomplish more even in terms of volumes than he could have individually as a human being. So looking back at our passage, Jesus tells his disciples, verses 4 and 5, not to depart from Jerusalem, wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me, John baptized with water, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Skipping down to verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. You, disciples, empowered by my Spirit, will be my witnesses. You will testify to an unbelieving world of the reality of my rule and my reign. You will bear witness to the fact that I am alive and that I am the king, not just of one particular nation, but I'm king over all nations. I'm king over all of creation. You will live lives that will point to the reality that that you are my people and that your ultimate allegiance is to, to me. You will point people to who I am, both in the words you say and as you communicate the good news of, of the gospel and in the way that, that you live. Through you, empowered by my spirit, the church will be established and spread and endure and even thrive and accomplish the mission that's been set before it so that the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against it. And to be clear, that's an offensive statement. The gates of hell belong to hell, and they are being knocked down by the work of Jesus through his people empowered by his spirit. These blue-collar men, these men who've shown themselves time and time again to be easily distracted, misguided, forgetful, will participate on the ground floor of a movement that over, that over the course of the next 300 years will take down the Roman Empire as they know it and will continue to spread like wildfire all over the globe. Will continue to impact the world in ways that cannot even be measured. All through poor fishermen. Which is the way that God does things. Back in Deuteronomy, um, God tells Israel as they're about to enter the promised land, don't think you're getting all this because you're that special. See, it's always been this way. Okay? Don't think that, that I've chosen you because of your greatness in yourself. I'm choosing you because I love you, and I'm going to empower you to do things that, frankly, you're not capable of doing. This is Paul's message in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that God chose what is weak and foolish, the things that are not, so that no one can boast in his sight. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of misfits, a kingdom of the broken, a kingdom of the needy, a kingdom of people who are not capable in themselves, but God makes capable through the power of his spirit to bear witness to his goodness and grace, to bear witness to his son who's conquered sin and who reigns even right now. These are the people that God uses by the work of his spirit. And by the work of his spirit, he continues to draw others into this kingdom so that they might see the beauty of Jesus, to look to him in faith and repentance, to trust him and be witnesses to his goodness and grace as well. And so the kingdom of God, it's global, it's empowered, 
But lastly, the kingdom of God is certain. It's important to point this out because the reality is that this kingdom, the one that Jesus reigns over right now, is a contested kingdom. It's a kingdom where the reign of Jesus is not acknowledged everywhere. It's a kingdom where there remain forces in opposition to him. It's a kingdom where the goodness and beauty of the original creation is not present everywhere in its fullest form. I suspect that part of us, in fact, I kind of hope that part of us, when you hear the notion that, that, that Jesus is reigning right now, that's sort of disorienting to you. Because we look around at, at creation and when we wonder, like, really? 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 Right, right now, really? Because it always doesn't seem that way. And we live in a world that can feel downright chaotic, a world with pain and suffering, a world with injustice, a world with hostility, a world with unemployment, a world with, world with cancer, a world with profound loneliness, and we want, really? Jesus is writing right now, really. Upon his rather quick departure, um, in verse 11, two men in white robes asked the disciples this question. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The reminder here to these men is that Jesus is coming back. And so what you're about to do is to live in the in-between. In the in-between, between his departure and his return. And there's a theological concept, maybe you've heard this, maybe you haven't. Um, it's okay if you haven't. Um, but I think it describes this really, really well. It's the notion of the, the already and the not yet. The already and the not yet, as we think about the world that we, we live in right now. Jesus is. He is already king. Right now, at the Father's hand. And yet there's a not yet to this as well. The, the fulfillment, the, the, the full realization of his kingdom is not something that we experience right now. We live in the in-between. And in the in-between... Christians, believers, are called to testify to the fact, whether the world believes it or not, Jesus is king. Right now. Jesus is king. Today. Right now. Now, you just look at this question. You know, why are you looking into heaven? Why are you looking into heaven? My, the, the sarcastic side of me kind of goes, well, what, what just took place seem, seems noteworthy. Um, you know, that. But their point in asking the question is that, and this this is very delicate because it gets to the tension of this. The point is, is that just sitting here and looking and waiting on Jesus to come back actually could create some inertia, some inaction, because there is about to be spirit-empowered work that needs to be done. These men are to be witnesses to the reign of Jesus in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's a tough task. It's a very tough task. Because what they're about to do is going to get them in a lot of trouble. Back in the Gospel of John, 
Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate. He's asked the question, are you the king of the Jews? You see, Pilate really didn't care about all the little intramural debates and, and stuff going on uh, within Jewish life and who is this Jesus and all that kind of stuff. That, 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 he didn't have a dog in that fight. But he did care about this notion of, of a king. That kind of that gets up in his business. Because um, if Jesus is a king, then Jesus is threatening his rule. Now it's political. And so Jesus replies to the question by making the statement, my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, my kingdom is fundamentally different from any other type of kingdom. We hear that statement, my kingdom is not of this world. And I suspect that there might be the temptation for some of us to hear this, my kingdom has nothing to do with this world. The idea being that you know, Jesus' kingdom is a, is, it's a spiritual kingdom, Right? That Jesus comes and, well, you know, we can't see it on a map, but it's in my heart, you know? The kingdom is, is, is here. I don't mean to scoff at that idea because it's true that the kingdom, that Christ takes up residence here and, and, and reigns in our hearts. But here's the thing. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, like what you do comes out of who you are, and if Jesus has taken up residence within your heart, then that's going it, to, it's going to change you. And it's not just going to change you like, you know, in your personal ethics, it's going to change how you live. It's going to change you how, how you practice life. And if you put enough people where the reign of Jesus is being acknowledged, then that's going to have an impact on the culture around. It's going to have an impact on, on the world. It's going to potentially put a little dent in the way things are, are, are working, and that's a threat. It's a threat to anyone who wants power, and it's going to create opposition. I want to be very, 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 very clear about what I'm about to say, um, because I loathe. I cannot stand. Words are not strong enough um, to describe how much I just absolutely cannot stand politics from the pulpit, um, like, you know, meaning the endorsement of particular candidates or positions or agendas from the pulpit, um, because God gets sort of attached to a particular agenda that, that generally falls into the, you know, sort of the traditional mindsets of our present structure, you know, Republican, Democrat, progressive, uh, conservative, whatever. And, and as it usually turns out, God's politics are somehow like mine. So that, that's always convenient. Um, if that's what is meant by politics from the pulpit, I want nothing of it. And I think we should be very, very careful of that. But the reason that Jesus was crucified by Pilate was because he was a threat. A threat to his kingdom. Because here's the thing. If Jesus is king then Caesar is not. If Jesus is king, then Caesar is not. And so Jesus is a threat to the rulers of this earth because what it says is they are accountable to somebody other than themselves. And I am going to swear allegiance to Jesus as opposed to someone who 
wants to be God or is functioning that way. Which changes our posture on how we engage with the world in the in-between. It's just, there, there are inevitable tensions of living as faithful followers of Jesus with our allegiance being to this kingdom. It's just hard and complicated and requires tremendous amounts of wisdom. What does it look like to follow Jesus now? Today, I mean, the church has always wrestled with this question. For 2,000 years, the church has wrestled with the question of what does it look like for us to be faithful wherever we are, depending on whether or not you're in a democracy or not, um, depending on who's in charge or not. But the reality is, if you go back and read that first statement at the beginning, what we're doing here, this is from James K.A. Smith, um, one of my favorites. We read the uh, whole You Are What You Love book. But what we're doing here right now is political. It's not like endorse the candidates kind of political, but it's political by us saying, you know what? Jesus is king, and we believe that, and that means that we are accountable to him first and foremost. And we need that reminder constantly. The reason that, that, that these men are saying that Jesus is coming back is because it keeps us oriented in the fact that what we see right now, while we are called to work in it, it's not ultimate. Jesus is ultimate, and we are called to, to serve him and to love him, which changes our posture towards the kingdoms of this world. It also changes the posture that I have towards my little kingdom. See, all of us have our own desire to have some autonomy, right? Some autonomy over our lives, control, power, to get to do what we want to do. That's what freedom, freedom The fact that Jesus is king means not only that Caesar's not king, it means I'm not king. It means that I have to submit to the rule of someone else, which is hard. Um, But that's what we're called to. But it's only in, remember this is good news, right? It's only in seeing the beauty of Christ's kingdom a king who would lay down his life and suffer for the sake of his people and loves them and provides for them. It's only in seeing the beauty of that that we can give up our king, kingdoms. That our ultimate allegiance can be to Jesus and we can be reminded again and again of the certainty that Christ is coming back and that is good news because my sin, which is real, which deserves punishment, it has been absorbed. It has been taken. And so I can look at Jesus and look forward to Jesus as good news because the king is coming and he's taken my sin upon himself. And so we're called to wait. It's one of the themes we see in this passage. You know, on the one hand, there's the work, you know, stop staring, get out there, you know, go be my witnesses. There's also the point where he says, you don't know the times and the seasons. You don't know the times and the seasons that the, point, that the Father has appointed. That you're supposed to wait for the Holy Spirit. And, and there's a sense in which we wait even now. But we wait with hope. We wait knowing that our King is sovereign and he is good and he will come in his timing. And that we can trust him.
Let me pray for us. Gracious God, I pray, Father, that, that this notion of being a citizen of your kingdom, perhaps that's something that, that maybe we, we've heard about or talk about, think about, but, but as far as it registering, as far as it moving the needle within our hearts, Lord, it, just, it doesn't do much for us. I pray as we reflect on the fact that Jesus is reigning over all of history and over the minutia of our lives, that we, we can look at that and, and, and see the beauty in it. It would allow us to, to rest, to trust you, that, that as we live within the tensions we're called to, with all sorts of people clamoring for our allegiance, with our own hearts longing for independence, we could see the beauty of your kingdom. Amen.